from PRX. We have a favor to ask. One of our advertisers is conducting a survey, and we'd be grateful for your help answering a few of their questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps our show. You can go to slatestudy.com right now to complete the short survey. Thanks. Today on Studio 360... Let's go home, Debbie. The Searchers is widely considered to be one of the greatest movies ever made. But... I took my wife to see this movie, and all she could say was, this is the most racist movie I've ever seen. I don't know how you could watch this film. And I told her, you're absolutely right. The Searchers, John Ford's problematic masterpiece. Plus... Forty-four years later, moviegoers are still throwing rice and doing the pelvic thrust. Rocky Horror is about the sexual revolution in America and how insane the country went. Why the Rocky Horror Picture Show lives on. Two American icons are ahead on Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Colonel Thursday, I gave my word to Cochise. No man is going to make a liar out of me, sir. That's John Wayne, of course, in one of the many westerns he made with the director John Ford. There's no question of honor, sir, between an American officer and Cochise. There is to me, sir. Together, Ford and John Wayne, they kind of have to say his whole name, made more than a dozen films and created this archetypal persona. Much more than just a movie cowboy, John Wayne came to represent an idea of American masculinity, an ideal to which lots of men aspired. But as really masterful as many of Ford's John Wayne Westerns are, 60 and 70 and 80 years later, there are also troubling aspects to some. So what should we here in the 21st century make of them? For our American Icon series, Arun Venegapal explores one of the best of those John Ford, John Wayne movies— It's a film that features both men at the height of their powers and at their most problematic. I was, I suspect, among the last generation of American children to play cowboys and Indians. I was an Indian kid growing up in Texas, but the other kind of Indian, we'd say almost apologetically. My dad, the Indian immigrant, watched Westerns on TV. He was a fan of the show Bonanza. But I never got it. In the 1970s, even kids like me, who played with fake tomahawks and wore feather headdresses without the slightest inhibition, didn't watch westerns. Their heyday had come and gone. In fact, I don't think I watched a single western until I was well into adulthood, in the late 90s. The film was John Ford's magnum opus, The Searchers, from 1956. And I've been thinking about it and fretting over it ever since. So The Searchers is considered the kind of the greatest of the golden era of Hollywood westerns. 
1959, Jean-Luc Godard, you know, the famous new wave French director and Cahier de Cinema, wrote about it in glowing terms and compared it to Homer's The Odyssey. It's widely regarded as one of the most magnificent Hollywood movies and indeed movies of any kind or country of origin ever made. In 2008, the American Film Institute named The Searchers the greatest Western. Entertainment Weekly said the same thing. On Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a 100% rating with critics. Stephen Metcalf is the host of Slate's Culture Gab Fest podcast and its critic at large. It's been a well of creative inspiration that great filmmakers have gone back to over and over and over again. Filmmakers like Steven Spielberg. I try to run a John Ford film, one or two, before I start every movie. I have to look at The Searchers, have to, almost every time. Star Wars owes a huge debt to The Searchers. It's a little short for a stormtrooper. Huh? Oh, the uniform. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. The Searchers was directed by John Ford and came out in 1956. It begins with one of the most memorable opening shots in film history, in which the pitch black screen gives way to a frame within a frame. From the interior of a home, we see the darkened silhouette of a woman standing within a doorway, looking out, away from us. Nancy Schoenberger is the author of Wayne and Ford, the films, the friendship, and the forging of an American hero. And what's on the other side of that door is this vast landscape. Filled with mesas rising up in the brilliant light of the desert. And you see a figure riding in from the vast landscape. Ethan? It gives you the sense that we are really watching something mythic here with these fantastic mesas and buttes. That's your Uncle Ethan! This is Texas, 1868. The man is Ethan Edwards, played by John Wayne. He's a hulking, mysterious figure who's returned to his brother's homestead after years away. He wears gray, Confederate gray, and he carries money, ill-gotten gains. But for a moment at least, we enjoy the reunion. Ethan with his brother and his sister-in-law, Martha, who is clearly in love with Ethan. And of course, the kids. In the eyes of the director, John Ford, no matter what life on the frontier is like outside, Inside, there's a simple, sentimental beauty, marked by warmth and laughter. But of course, the serenity doesn't last for long. Ethan and the others go out to investigate a cattle theft before realizing it's all just a ruse. Stealing the cattle was just to pull us out. This is a murder raid. The men rush back home, but by the time they arrive, it's too late. Everything's on fire. Martha, Ethan's beloved sister-in-law, has been raped by the Comanche, and she's dead. As is her husband Aaron, Ethan's brother, and their son Ben. But the two daughters, Lucy and young Debbie, are missing. They've been abducted by a sinister Comanche chief known as Scar. Just one reason we're here, ain't it? That's to find Debbie and Lucy? If they're still alive. And as the following scenes unfold, we understand how the film gets its name. Ethan and his adopted nephew, Martin, set out on a quest, a search, that will last years. Will they manage to find Lucy or Debbie? And what will happen if they do? It's a stark narrative, but Ford rarely spoke of his work in grand philosophical terms. To him, movies were entertainment. In The Searchers, you get slapstick fight scenes, riveting cowboy and engine battles, broad racial caricatures, and dance sequences.
years after making the searchers, John Ford was interviewed by a French journalist. Well, the Western is the best type of picture. It's action, but you have horses moving, you have movement, you have background, scenery, color, and that's why they're interesting. And I think most of our best pictures are Western. But one of many reasons why the film resonated to the extent it did, at least with critics, is because of the single-minded, Ahab-like intensity of Ethan's quest. Do you think maybe there's a chance we still might find her? Engine will chase a thing till he thinks he's chased it enough. And he quits. Same way when he runs. Seems like he never learns there's such a thing as a critter will just keep coming on. So we'll find them in the end, just as sure as a turning of the earth. More than anything else, one could argue The Searchers is about sex, which is to say the fear of it. Early in their quest, Ethan and Martin discover that the older of the two sisters is dead. That leaves just one, Debbie, played by Natalie Wood, who's out there, somewhere. She's alive, she's safe for a while, ill. Keep her to raise as one of their own until, until she's of an age to... What John Wayne alluded to just briefly in that little speech at the beginning is the fact that over time she will grow and come of age, which means she will become a woman and become the wife of a Comanche. Glenn Frankel is the author of The Searchers, The Making of an American Legend, and spoke to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. She will have sex with Indians, and this sort of psychosexual element to the story is what drives it forward, because as time goes on, the uncle makes the decision that he's not going to try to rescue her, to restore her to the family, but he's actually thinking of killing her because she's been violated. She's she's crossed that line. She's suffered a fate worse than death. And this is the twist that defines the searchers. The character of Ethan Edwards, as played by John Wayne, has no intention of saving his niece. He's more interested in saving whiteness by killing her. Ford never tries to sugarcoat Ethan's character. And as director Martin Scorsese explains it in an interview with the American Film Institute, we're often reminded of Ethan's brutality. You really get his character in the moment when uh, they unearth a a grave of a, a dead Indian. And there's some disagreement, they're discussing, they're arguing, and suddenly Ethan Edwards says, let's finish the job, do it right. Why don't you finish the job? Twirls out his gun and fires twice, shooting out the eyes of the dead Indian. What good did that do you? By what you preach, none. But what that Comanche believes, ain't got no eyes, he can't enter the spirit land, has to wander forever between the winds. Uh, So in a sense, what he's doing, he hates so much that he hates beyond the grave, that he doesn't want to give him the peace of his paradise. You know, he wants to kill the soul of of these people. Ethan's hatred of the Comanche is something so great that it worries even his own family. He'll find her now, Martin. Honest, he will. That's what I'm afraid of, Laurie. Him finding her. Oh, I've seen his eyes at the very word Comanche. I've seen him take his knife and... That's Martin, who Ethan had found as a baby, orphaned, and who is raised by Ethan's brother and family. But years later, Ethan only has contempt for him. Well, I could mistake you for a half-breed. Um, not quite. I'm eighth Cherokee, and the rest is Welsh and English. The racism takes different shapes. Sometimes it's explicit and violent, and sometimes it's meant to be funny. During their travels, Ethan and Martin are briefly joined by a third character, a heavyset Native American woman. 
Somehow, in a comic turn, she's been won by Martin. You didn't buy any blanket. You bought her. You got yourself a wife, Sonny. (laughs) She's his accidental bride. And although she doesn't speak his language and he doesn't speak hers, she is clearly smitten. Martin finds this absolutely infuriating. And when she tries to snuggle up next to him at night, he jumps up (laughs) and kicks her down a hill. You know, that's grounds for divorce in Texas. The scene is played for laughs. The first time I saw The Searchers, this was the one thing that stayed with me. I was so troubled by it. John Ford was even asked about this years later. Why are they beaten by men? Why are they being punished? Who? Women. Women. Where? In your pictures. Oh, the audience is like it. He was a showman above all else. But for Martin Scorsese and other fans of the film, The Searchers was a window onto life. Not just life on the frontier, but contemporary American society. He just literally acts out the racism, the worst aspects of racism of our country. And he just shows us the worst part of ourselves that's coming out of the late 40s, early 50s. He just brings it right up to the surface, so we have to deal with it. I watched it over and over and over again because I've probably seen this film 50 times, man. I can probably articulate every scene in this movie. Sam Pollard is a documentary filmmaker who teaches at NYU. After watching it for so many years, I see how complicated it is in terms of issues of race, in terms of issues of masculinity and gender. That John Ford, in his character of Ethan, basically paints a very complicated brush of a man who's a misogynist and a racist, you know. John Ford knew what he was doing. Pollard and I watched the scene together. This is the moment when Ethan and his traveling companion of many years, Martin, finally encounter Debbie in the desert. She's dressed in Native American clothes. It's kind of a blast to watch movies with Sam Pollard, even ones he's seen 50 times. It's your brother Martin. Debbie. I come to take you home. Debbie, don't you remember? I'm Martin, I'm Martin. Don't you remember me, Debbie? And she says, Martin, I waited for you. I prayed for you to come, Martin. (laughs) I love this movie. You didn't come. And then, just as Martin is reconnecting with his long-lost sister, the one he spent years of his life searching for, Ethan draws his gun and aims it right at her. Stand aside, Martin. He's bent on an honor killing. Nancy Schoenberger. And it's really terrifying to see the depth and, and the passion of his hatred and his hatred of the Comanches. Schoenberger says she asked filmmaker and John Ford obsessive Peter Bogdanovich a central question about the character of Ethan. Well, why do we even care about him when he is so frightening a figure? And his response was, because it's John Wayne. You can't not like John Wayne. He brought the goodwill of his earlier movies. And of course, I don't want to do a spoiler alert here, but I will. The very end of the movie, he does redeem himself. And this is how. After their initial close encounter with Debbie, Martin and Ethan are chased off by Comanche warriors connected to the evil Chief Scar. But they eventually return, and with the cavalry close by, descend upon a Comanche village. Ethan rides in and finds his nemesis, Chief Scar, inside a teepee. He's already dead, presumably from a stray bullet, but that doesn't stop Ethan from scalping his corpse. Then, on horseback, he bears down on Debbie. She runs in terror from him, and in vain. No, Ethan! No! But at the moment when Ethan is expected to finally kill her, he relents. 
Let's go home, Debbie. Instead of murdering Debbie and maintaining his idea of racial purity, he holds her in his arms, high up in the air. And then they go home. I can see why the searchers was canonized, because it documented the unmitigated hatred of this one white man during an era, the 1950s, when the dominant culture was so white and so patriarchal. But more importantly, because it suggested that even the worst, most racist white guy can be saved, that he is deep down a good guy. Having experienced a change of heart, he simply leaves the homestead behind one last time and walks off into the sunset. So, you know, the standard line about the Western is that the actual Western frontier of the United States closed right around 1890. And the idea that, you know, our Westering spirit, that the restless would always be able to go further West and start anew, was done with. And it's at exactly that moment that the Western dime novel becomes a popular genre. And out of those dime novels comes the cowboy operas or, you know, horse operas of the B picture. And out of those comes Ford and Wayne. And the idea is that this is a highly mythic, highly nostalgic idea of America and an America that's been lost, against which masculinity tests itself by rescuing wilderness from the savages. Meaning, of course, from Native Americans. You might think the idea of the savage Indian had been around forever, or at least since the time of first contact with Europeans. But in the movies, it only developed during the 1930s, according to the documentary Real Injun. This was when the country, meaning white America, was looking for a new kind of hero. And John Ford and John Wayne were instrumental in that process, with the first film they collaborated on. Stagecoach is the iconic Western. It's the Western that all others were really modeled uh, after. And it's one of the most damaging movies for Native people in history. Ojibwe film critic Jesse Wente. You have white society inside a stagecoach, and they are besieged on all sides by Native people, by the wild of America. Those that are stopping progress, those that are backwards, those that are vicious and bloodthirsty. Stagecoach summed up and gave the opinion of Native people for decades to the populace in the U.S. That's how they thought of us, and it's because of John Ford that they thought of us like that. The Searchers, released 17 years after Stagecoach, is often positioned as the right kind of Western because it concedes that white people can be savage in their own right. But here's the thing. Ethan's character is granted agency. He makes choices. For whatever reason, he chooses not to kill Debbie. That same agency isn't extended to his Comanche enemy, Scar, who's killed off-screen. Scar was played by Henry Brandon, born Heinrich von Kleinbach, a white guy in brownface or redface. I took my wife to see this movie at the, at the public theater years ago. Sam Pollard. And all she could say was, this is the most racist movie I've ever seen. I don't know how you could watch this film. And I told her, you're absolutely right. I grew up in the West, and I look at the Western, and I know that it's probably the best propaganda movie ever made, meaning it allows us to root for the manifest destiny of the settlers or the colonizers and to defeat Native people. Chris Ayer is Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho, and the director of the film Smoke Signals. The only thing more damaging to Native people over the past 120 years than the Bible was cinema. 
that has been the lot of Native people in movies, which is romantic that Native people die so that the real people, the settlers, can actually prosper. It's not just the Native characters in The Searchers. We're left to wonder about Debbie, too, who was captured by the Comanche at a young age, then returned to white civilization. How does she feel about that? The film doesn't ask. He wants to kill her for surviving, for the language she spits. But Tracy K. Smith does. She's the U.S. Poet Laureate, and years ago, she wrote a poem simply called The Searchers. It's written from Debbie's perspective. The way she runs, clutching her skirt, as if life pools there. Instead, he grabs her, puts her on his saddle, rides back into town, where faces she barely remembers smile into her fear with questions and the wish, the impossible wish, to forget. What does living do to any of us? Tracy K. Smith thinks the film still serves a purpose, but with a big fat asterisk. When it's screened, movie theaters should follow it with community discussions, like some theaters do with another racially problematic movie, Gone with the Wind. It definitely requires a talkback session. (laughs) I think it's a film that we need to talk about. Uh, We can't just take everything at face value. You know, I think it, it touches on too much that still hurts and on too much that affirms perspectives that are willfully blind to the realities of contemporary Native American life. Stephen Metcalf isn't so generous. Like me, he thinks that the movies and the Western's fixation with great white men means that The Searchers is no longer relevant. What people struggling on behalf of women's rights, gay rights, and the rights of people of color need right now aren't for the white heroes to step in and be white heroes again. And if we're going to give enormous amounts of credit to movies that were exploitative of such people by saying, well, they're actually winking at us or they actually have a layer of ambivalence or ambiguity to them, you're leaving intact white men as the heroes who are going to rescue us. I don't think we need to be rescued by John Wayne. Arun Venegapal of WNYC produced our story. Special thanks to Lauren Francis for production assistance and to Wayne Schulmeister, who engineered the segment. Coming up, how the Rocky Horror Picture Show embraced... And embraced, and embraced. Give yourself over to absolute pleasure. That's next on Studio 360. It's not even 11 o'clock yet. I I bet we could go see a midnight movie. That's Drew Carey in an episode of The Drew Carey Show from 20 years ago. I'm talking about the midnight movie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
Oh my God, we haven't done that since high school. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Only this time we won't get wasted and question our sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone except me did. The Rocky Horror Picture Show came out when I was in college. Before Rocky Horror became a movie, it was a live show conceived in Britain and imported to America. And for the next installment of our American Icon series, we asked June Thomas, who was also conceived in Britain and also imported to America, to tell the story of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. When the Rocky Horror Picture Show was first released in 1975, it flopped spectacularly. Variety found its campy hijinks laboured, and Newsweek called it tasteless, plotless, pointless. But after all those terrible reviews, something happened. It was a night out they were going to remember for a very long time. Small, independent theatres programmed it as a midnight movie, and audience members started talking back to the screen. The participation became more important than the film itself, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show became a phenomenon. It would end up shattering the record for the longest-running theatrical release in movie history, because people kept coming back. I saw it 80 times in high school. (laughs) Well, I remember celebrating, you know, my 100th and then my 500th. Maybe a couple thousand? So if I sat down and did the math, I might cry. More than 40 years after its debut, the Rocky Horror Picture Show still fills movie theaters all across America. Maybe not the 230 venues of 1979, but you can still see it year-round in 80 or so U.S. towns and cities. But why has its appeal endured? Well, for one thing, it's all about sex. On the surface, it's this incredible celebration of individuality and nonconformity and cultural freedom that really speaks to people. That's Scott Miller, artistic director of the New Line Theatre in St. Louis. But I think on a deeper level, Rocky Horror really is about the sexual revolution in America and how insane the country went (laughs) over the sexual revolution. In the movie, Brad and Janet, a newly engaged couple played by Barry Boswick and Susan Sarandon, I love you. seek shelter in a remote castle. Come inside. They find themselves at a strange gathering. You've arrived on a rather special night. It's one of the master's affairs. Oh. Where Dr. Frankenfurter... Enchanté. <laughs> a cross-dressing mad scientist, played with over-the-top charm by Tim Curry... And what charming underclothes you both have. ...is about to reveal his latest creation, Rocky, the man of his dreams. I can make you a <laughs> Frank quickly seduces both Brad and Janet... <laughs> You tricked me. I wouldn't have. I've never, never. Yes, yes, I know. But it isn't all bad, is it? Kills a biker named Eddie. It was a mercy killing. 
and tricks his guests into eating Eddie's flesh. That's a rather tender subject. Another slice, anyone? On a British chat show, Richard O'Brien, who wrote Rocky Horror and played Riff Raff, described the plot another way. I think the reason for its longevity is that it's a fairy tale and it's a, a retelling of Genesis. Brad and Janet are Adam and Eve and the serpent is Frankenfurter. Or as Scott Miller put it... It's about two young people who go into the woods and find themselves. The woods is the place where you go and kind of what you think is torn apart and reconstructed for you. And so Brad and Janet go into the woods. They are forced to confront themselves, their own sexuality, their own feelings about that stuff. And they come out the other end changed people, just like in a Shakespeare play. In the I first saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show in Newark, Delaware in the early 1980s. Those boisterous late-night screenings were the closest thing the college town had to a gay bar. And as a newly arrived foreign grad student, it was the kind of uniquely American experience I craved. Which is odd, because O'Brien and almost all of his early collaborators were British or Australian. That doesn't surprise Scott Miller. I think it took outsiders, non-Americans, to look at this moment in American cultural history and see the truth of it and the ridiculousness of it and the complexity of it. And what they saw was a nation losing its mind over sex. I'm just a sweet transvestite. Uh, Frankenfurter represents the sexual revolution, the completely unfettered free sexuality whatever the consequences. <laughs> Give yourself over to absolute pleasure. And Brad and Janet are America reacting to this, grappling with this. Like a lot of America did, Brad is freaked out by it, tries to turn it back, is scared of it. It's your fault! You're to blame! I thought it was the real thing! Oh, come on, Brad, admit it. You liked it, didn't you? And like a lot of America, Janet embraces it, arguably goes too far. And it leaves both of them shattered by the end, <laughs> which is pretty much what the sexual revolution did to us. At that precise moment in the mid-1970s, the hottest pop stars think David Bowie, Freddie Mercury and Mark Bolan also happen to be stretching gender boundaries. Frank has to be a glam rocker because glam rock was that one moment, that was some genre in, in rock and roll where gender was really fluid. And that's what was scary to people <laughs> um, in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's what's scary to Brad and Janet. I'm not much of a man, but a lot of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. That's what makes Frank the monster, quote unquote, that we don't know his gender. It's fluid. It's both. It's neither, you know. There was a lot going on with Tim Curry's Frankenfurter. I play um, Frankenfurter, who is a kind of uh, new variation on the mad scientist of 
horror films that we all know and love. It is parody, but it also, I'm, I play it and think it as a kind of grisly reality. His ripped clothing prefigured the aesthetics of the punk movement. His mad scientist act reflected post-atom bomb anxiety about humans playing God. And his unruly sexual energy updated an entire movie genre. Michael Rennie was still the day the earth stood still. But he told us where we stand. The science fiction and horror movies uh, in the first half of the 20th century were full of sublimated sex, <laughs> you know, sex just under the surface. And Rocky Horror kind of acknowledges that and just yanks all of it up to the surface. Do you think Frank is the hero of this show? I mean... I don't. And the answer is it's Janet. She's the one who learns the most and changes the most over the course of the story. She's a really different person at the end of the story than she is at the beginning. Brad is somewhat, but not nearly to the same extent. This is Janet's hero myth story. Oh, if only we hadn't made this journey. If only the car hadn't broken down. She has to go through these trials and tribulations and learn things. She goes to the underworld, quote unquote, and comes out the other side with new knowledge and new wisdom. Janet! 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 You better wise up. Janet Wise. He might not be the hero, but Frankenfurter is undoubtedly the pulsating engine of the musical. Tim Curry is just this magical combination of rock and roll and theater. She doesn't shy away from any kind of theatrical gesture. And, and here's a part where it's encouraged and yet has the vocal chops and the rock and roll chops. That's Mark Shaman, the Grammy, Emmy and Tony winning composer and lyricist best known for Hairspray. We talked while he was at the piano in his home studio. So it all just comes together in this wonderful bouillabaisse of, of music and theater and campiness and his the way he sometimes puts on airs like a, an old movie actress, and uh, it's all just wonderful. How's you are? See, you've met my faithful handy band. How's it go? Uh, that's not exactly right. There we go. Uh, you wouldn't have noticed the difference. And now I can't remember any of the lyrics. <laughs> I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transo, transsexual, Transylvania. Shaman was one of those people who went to the Waverly Theater in New York's Greenwich Village every weekend. When I went to see Rocky Horror, that was yet another musical that, that was teaching me how rock and roll music and rock and roll lyrics can also certainly set a vibe and, and tell a story in a very different way from Rodgers and Hammerstein. And while Rocky Horror used a new kind of music, it still followed a familiar formula. It's a fairly traditional, old-school musical comedy. The first song introduces the themes and topics for the show. We meet the heroes one by one. The river was deep, but I swam it. Janet. The future is ours, so let's plan it. Janet. So please, don't tell me to can it. Janet. I have one thing to say, and that's, damn it, Janet, I love you. Um, we get songs that say, this is who I am. We get songs that say, this is what I want. Now all I want to know <laughs> is how to go. I've tasted blood, and I want more. More, more, more. <laughs> we get all the traditional show tunes. 
What's subversive about it is that it's rock and roll and particularly originally in London in 73, 74, like pretty raw rock and roll. But it's got this very freaky, crazy content to it that was part of what made it so alternative and so kind of, you know, naughty. It was that both traditional and totally not traditional all wrapped up together. The Rocky Horror Picture Show wasn't just any old midnight movie. That's because at some point in 1976, something happened that nobody was expecting, and it snowballed in a way that nobody could have predicted. There was a guy, he was a kindergarten teacher named Lewis. That's Sal Pira, who attended more than 3,000 midnight movie screenings in New York City and later became president of the official Rocky Horror Picture Show fan club. And he always sat in the balcony in the front row, and he had a great voice. One night, when Janet put a newspaper on her head and was walking in the rain, he just yelled out to be funny, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch. It was like, then it became like electrical. People were like, oh my God, that's funny. That's great. You know, we can add to our movie experience. And we started to think of things to yell. And soon talking in the movies wasn't the only rule that was being broken by the audience. When Brad and Janet are caught in a rainstorm, they shoot water pistols in the theater. When Frank proposes a toast, they toss slices of toast at the screen. And of course, they dance along with the time warp. I've got to Jeffrey Weinstock, a professor of English at Central Michigan University, has identified three distinct types of callbacks in the Rocky Horror canon. The first is what I call predictive. Those are the moments where audience members demonstrate to the fullest their knowledge of the film because they preempt something that is to come. Is it true that you're constipated? It's true that we're dark Black and pendulous. That and the other early audience callouts we'll hear come courtesy of Say It, the Rocky Horror Picture Show audience participation album recorded in New York in 1983. There are then what I call simultaneous responses, and that's where the audience overlays their own comment upon something that's taking place on the screen. That round of applause at the end of the bit explains a lot about the thrill of Rocky Horror's interactivity. Members of the audience are congratulating themselves for getting it right. The third category is what I call reactive. And this is a response from the audience to something that has just been said or has just taken place. There's a line later on when Rocky Horror says, is singing, I'm just seven hours old. The Rocky Horror callbacks were like an early version of the internet meme, a series of building blocks that morphed and changed beyond the control or knowledge of their creators. We were establishing the fan club with the studio, and my friend Alex and I went out to California. So, of course, we were going to see Rocky, see what they were doing. And I had a line that I had invented. The criminologist says, and so... And so I came up with this stupid line. And Betsy Ross used to sit home and so and so. And the criminologist looked down and went, and so. 
And I thought, I'm the cleverest person ever. I traveled 3,000 miles, and I can't wait to yell my Betsy Ross line. And here I am at this theater that certainly had not started showing Rocky until after the Waverly. He's about to say, and so, and I'm about to yell out, and Betsy Ross, all of a sudden, half of the theater was yelling, Wait a minute. It had traveled ahead of me. Other people who had seen it in New York or seen it in Chicago that moved. To, it was such a weird phenomenon. We were very excited about it. We, we thought, gee, we helped make this. Don't dream it. Be it. More of our American Icon story about the Rocky Horror Picture Show after this break. Don't dream it. Be it. Don't dream it. Be it. Don't dream it. Studio 360. We are back now with more Rocky Horror Picture Show. June Thomas explains how a new crowd of theatergoers has helped the film grow beyond its midnight movie roots. Don't dream it. Be The sight of Tim Curry's androgynous, outrageously sexy, sexually voracious Frankenfurter drew a new crowd to the theatre. People who were or saw themselves as outsiders, especially what we'd now call queer and gender non-conforming kids. It's like I can't tell the story of my life without talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think. That's actress, writer and activist Shakina Nafak. She first saw the movie in Los Angeles in the 1990s when she was a pre-teen. And I shoplifted fishnets and nail polish and, and eyeliner and like did all my makeup in a bathroom somewhere. After the movie was ended, I snuck into the restroom of the theater and like tried to clean it all off so that I got back in the car like looking like a normal 12-year-old kid. Frank's presence was crucial. It was the first time that I had ever seen someone like me in a movie. For many hardcore fans, the Rocky Horror audience became the family many of its members lacked, a tribe that supported and loved them. But ever since the movie was first released, some people have worried that its unconventional representations of gender were a bad influence on America's youth. Shakina Nafak's parents had tried to discourage her from seeing the film. My family and the authority figures in my life at school as well saw Rocky Horror as this proselytizing of queerness and gender nonconformity that was really dangerous to the social order, which it is, thankfully. But I was really out and loud and proud as a young queer person in, in a time where that wasn't happening. It was the, the 90s were like the beginning of the queer youth movement, and I was really part of the forefront of that. And especially in my queerness was expressed through alternative gender presentation, which really terrified people. Uh, there weren't a lot of other places you could go to look for that. I mean, maybe when the birdcage came out and to Wong Fu, th- there was some drag in the in the consciousness. But that was like a different kind of camp. And Rocky Horror was was sexual and ruckus 
and freewheeling and punk rock. And that's kind of what I brought, you know, into my high school, which just really scared people. And and I think when they tried to snuff that out of me, a way to do that was to snuff out Rocky Horror Picture Show. Still, tastes, values and attitudes were totally different in 1975. Why does this film, which may be beloved but is rarely acclaimed as a masterpiece, still captivate young people? Rocky tends to operate in a kind of a nostalgic mode today. Jeffrey Weinstock. There's a nostalgia on the part of those who were part of the cult film phenomenon for a time when Rocky was risque rather than routine. And it may be that part of what is transgressive in Rocky's spectatorship today is indulging in a kind of anti-political correctness. That is, the same people who um, would go on a slut walk and would get outraged by the idea of slut shaming are the same ones who sort of gleefully will shout slut at Janet each time her name is said. The very language of the show is awkward to 21st century ears. When the high schoolers on the TV show Glee performed a tribute to Rocky Horror, they changed the words transsexual Transylvania to... Transylvania. The word transsexual is a tricky word. It's a word that, you know, is dated. For me, I claim the label of transsexual a lot because... So much of my journey has been about wanting to finally have an integrated, passionate, healthy sex life, to be a sexual being, which I could never be in the wrong body. And so to to remove sex from that journey and that identity does a disservice to my own act of reclamation. So I say, leave the word, sing the word. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. <laughs> and now, Frank and Furter, your time has come. Say goodbye to all of this. At the end of the movie, Frank and Furter is murdered by his not so faithful servants, Riff Raff and Magenta. <laughs> That outcome seems unavoidable to Jeffrey Weinstock. Frank's reign, I've come to think, is a bit like the film itself. It's a, a temporary break from reality that can't persist. Um, the ending, to my mind, is very much about the reassertion of order. But it seems inevitable to me. Um, we didn't and still don't have a culture in which Frank's hedonism, not to mention murder and cannibalism, can reign unchecked. No one watching the movie in the 1970s would have been surprised by that ending. In the movies it was parodying and in society as a whole, a proud, proselytizing pansexual couldn't be allowed to prosper. The outcasts who found family at Rocky Horror would expect that least of all. Still, if you were someone who held your tongue when being yelled at or bullied, those midnight screenings were a sanctuary. A place where, with water gun in one hand and toast in the other, you could finally yell back. People always say, how can you put up with all the yelling and screaming and the cursing and the things like that? And you know what? That's all part of a bunch of young people letting themselves go, growing up, you know, going through puberty. 
I think that Rocky Horror is benchmark. It is a time capsule of a really particular moment in queer liberation when the carnal celebration of queer desire became pop culture. That crossover really helped so many people. I think what's appealing about Rocky is that it breaks lots of rules. The anarchy of screaming at the movie screen and throwing food at the movie screen. It was just so freeing and so wild. It feels subversive. I think it will always feel subversive as long as America is hung up on sex, which I think will be always. It's just a jump to the left. June Thomas produced our story with help from Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez and production assistance from Tori Bedford. You can hear more of June on the terrific podcast she co-hosts, The Waves. And that's it for this installment of American Icons. Head to Studio360.org to hear the rest of our American Icons catalog. Dozens of stories and whole hours about the great works of art and culture America has produced. And to make sure you're the first to hear about the new American Icon stories we're making right now, subscribe to the podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazaria, Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Great ideas brought to life and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360? I got some emails from people who said they didn't like it. Michelle Obama's official portrait, a case study in how to appreciate art in the digital age. And then they went to see it in person, and then they emailed me afterwards and said it made me cry, it's so beautiful. I mean, paintings are meant to be viewed in person. The artist Amy Sherald gives me a gallery tour of her new paintings next time on Studio 360. 